Good morning, friends. It's Wednesday, April 8th, and this is a special online City Club forum in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Dan Malter, Chief Executive, pardon me, Chief Executive at the City Club and a proud member. And today we're talking about how to manage stress, anxiety, and family life during this COVID-19 moment. Our guest today is a good friend of the City Clubs and a previous City Club speaker, Dr. Lisa Damore. She's recognized as a thought leader by the American Psychological Association for her work on stress and anxiety. And she's the author of two New York Times bestselling parenting books that you've probably heard of. The first, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and the second, Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Uh, despite the focus on those two books, we're gonna be talking about mental health generally. Dr. Demore also writes the monthly adolescence column for the New York Times, and she serves as a regular contributor to CBS News. She maintains a private practice and consults and speaks internationally. She's also senior advisor to the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University and serves as the executive director of Laurel School's Center for Research on Girls. And as we begin, I wanna thank sponsors and members who have stepped up to support our efforts uh, to continue the conversation in the midst of this crisis. Our virtual forums, City Club virtual forums, are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, and PNC, with additional support from Bank of America, the Center for Community Solutions, and St. Luke's Foundation, along with many more generous members, sponsors, and donors who are listed on our website. You can find them all at cityclub.org slash thank you. Canceled in-person forums, as you can imagine, due to the pandemic has meant the loss of tens of thousands of dollars in revenue that supports City Club operations. So the support of donors like those and your support as well help us continue to provide you with conversations of consequence now and on the other side of this crisis. Thank you very much. Now, as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them in. Now to the conversation, Dr. Lisa Damore, welcome to the City Club. Good morning, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. It is great to have you. How, first of all, how are you doing? Personally, we are well. I am very um, more aware than ever of our extraordinary um, privilege and safety and how fortunate we are as a family and um, in terms of our jobs and our kids and our educational system that um, we are feeling held up and supported by the work of everyone around us, teachers, the medical field, um, the incredible frontline work that is going on and as grateful as can be. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, These are extraordinarily and unprecedented times creating um, stressors and triggers for anxiety that we really haven't seen before, at least in our lives. Um, But um, can you just talk about, can we start off by just talking about what an extraordinary moment this is and then what that actually means for mental health? Yeah, Um, I certainly feel like myself and others, like we are still wrapping our heads around it. It happened so fast, came down so quickly, upended everything so dramatically that I think that there's still going to be a slow process for everyone, myself included, of um, really coming to terms with the scope and scale of this. Once we get past the speed part, I think the scope and scale are now becoming more obvious. I um, have been thinking a lot, though, about some misinformation that exists around stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then also um, some helpful, positive, more accurate information that would be useful for everyone to have. So in terms of the misinformation piece, there has been a widespread belief that stress and anxiety are bad. 
and that these are harmful and inherently pathological. And I have good news. Um, psychology has always been stress and anxiety normal healthy functions. So okay, you're saying it's like perfectly like I'm not supposed to be uh, responding to this moment with joy and tenacity and resilience. Like it's okay to feel stressed out. That's a normal response. If you are feeling totally normal, like everything's all right, I'm worried. <laughs> that, that would be grounds for concern right now. So the way we understand anxiety is that it alerts us when there's a threat. It helps us pay attention when something's wrong. And so everyone's anxiety should be heightened a little bit right now. What I hope for everyone is they have places where they can let their guard down, maybe at home, you know, that they can feel safe and not worried. When we're out and about, our anxiety should be elevated. It will help us to stay apart from one another. It will help us to remember to take our mask to the grocery store. It will help us do all of the things that we need to do to be safe. So um, there's two conditions where we don't like anxiety anymore. We don't like anxiety when there's no threat, which we don't have that problem right now. And we don't like anxiety when it is grossly out of proportion to the threat. So if you feel like, yeah, I'm anxious, but I'm up here all the time, that's going to really take it out of you. So for those things, and I know this sounds corny, I would say, use your breathing. Breathing works. Um, there's a network of um, nerves across the surface of our lungs that detect the activity of our lungs. Um, they are part of a system that alerts our brain if we're not breathing, which is a good system to have. When we slow and deepen our breathing, we actually tap into this network of nerves that nerves system sends a message up the neck to the brain saying you can calm down. So it's, you know, I think breathing can sound kind of wooey and kind of vague, but actually it's a highly technical and biological intervention. So slowing and deepening your breathing will actually counteract the fight or flight response, which is where the brain tells the lungs to speed up. The lungs can actually tell the brains to take a, take a break. Um, and distract yourself. If you're watching the news all the time, if you're looking at social media and stuff's popping up that scares you, take a break. So so I have been, you know, aware of meditation as a practice for roughly three quarters of my life, I would say. And um, only now, right at this moment, have you explained to me what's actually going on. Do you have a, this may be a personal question, but like, what's your mantra? <laughs> do you have a particular mantra you use when you like try to slow your breathing down? Or do you just say, okay, I'm going to slow my breathing down? So I use what we call square breathing and I'll describe it. And we want to go around, we can do a round together. So square breathing is where you breathe in on a count of three, hold it for a count of three, breathe out on a count of three and wait for a count of three. Um, what's good about it is that it takes more concentration than you think it's going to. And so you can't keep spinning on whatever got you anxious. You can't keep thinking about it while you square breathe. Square breathing uses your whole body and your whole mind. And that's what we need. So, okay, so breathe out all your air. You ready? Okay, inhale slowly, one, two, three. Hold it, one, two, three. Let the air fall out, one, two, three. Wait, one, two, three. So that's one mechanism. You can do a few rounds of that. That's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. If you're a very anxious person, practice square breathing when you're calm so that it's a groove you can slip into when you're anxious. But I didn't come across that biological information until about three years ago. And that for me was a game changer that I was always like breathing, shmeathing, like I'm a technical psychologist, like I don't do stuff without research. And to understand the neural pathways that get activated 
was mm. um, really powerful for me. And in my experience, teaching this to kids is much more effective if they can understand these pathways. And then I actually think visualize these pathways, visualize this network mm -hmm. of nerves, picking up a reassuring and calming message. That is, um, that's really helpful. It's an, and, and it's helpful to know that you only just learned the biological piece recently too. So I don't feel quite so far behind. <laughs> I, I can by accident in a time. I will, I will just share to the extent that it's helpful that I learned a mantra a gazillion years ago from a book by a Vietnamese Buddhist who, um, and the mantra is simply, I breathe in, I calm my body, I breathe out, I smile. And that's all you do. Yep. That's all, you, that's all it is. Well, and and, when I was, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I mean, it's like whatever works, right? I mean. What? And just to get into the technical piece, because stress and anxiety are as well understood in academic psychology as anything. So what you're describing, me with my counting, you with your mantra, is you're making your brain stop talking. That you're actually replacing all of these worry, worry, worry thoughts with other words. And so you're getting a sort of a two for one. You're both interacting with the neurological networks, you are also telling your brain, stop all the chatter, I'm replacing it with these calming words or this simple counting. And it's the two together that are very powerful. Um, and I would say on the thinking piece, the other thing to watch out for when we look at pathological anxiety, there's a very simple definition to the thinking patterns. You are overestimating the threat and you are underestimating your ability to do something to keep yourself safe. So if you feel like your anxiety is riding really high, try to get that piece of it back in order. That's excellent. Um, the anxiety, the what you're talking about here in terms of anxiety, this is a, a literally a global phenomenon right now. Um, there's a unique phenomenon that's happening for um, for those of us who are parents, regardless of whether we are in a position of privilege or not. There's there's something else going on uh, that is both. It's a combination of fearing for my children, mm. fearing for their future, mm -hmm. fearing that I'll get sick and I mean, frankly, like I'll get sick and die and they'll be mm -hmm. left without a father. Right. Like that's a that's a very real fear that people have. Uh, add to that then the stress of this like homeschooling that, that many are expected to um, to run while mm -hmm. also showing up professionally, whether working at home or being part of an essential service that requires you to continue to do work um, mm -hmm. in other ways uh, in your workplace, be that in a healthcare facility, uh, a grocery store or some other place. Can you talk about that whole yeah. bucket of like overflowing bucket of stressors? Okay, so let's talk about stress. And what I'm helping us all do is to use the psychological defense of intellectualization, where you think about something through a technical terminology that gives you a new way to feel in better control. So here's what we know about stress in psychology. Actually, I'm gonna give you a, tea, a teaspoon of the gallons that we know, but this is the teaspoon we need right now. When we talk about stress, as I heard you talking, two categories popped up in my mind. One is the stress of adaptation. The other is the stress of uncertainty. So let's start with the stress of adaptation. Psychologists have always recognized that adaptation is a wildly stressful thing to do, even if you're adapting to a good thing. Right, getting the job of your dreams is a wildly stressful thing to do. Bringing a baby home for the first time, right? I mean, like terribly stressful, though joyful and wonderful. Um, so we have always recognized that anytime you have to go from doing things one way to a new way, we experience that as psychologically taxing. So I don't know that I have ever borne witness to a time that demanded more adaptation all at once by everyone. 
And what you are describing, you know, in addition to like all of the, you know, the texture and the details is everyone's adapting. We do not live the way we used to live. We do not grocery shop. We do not wear the same things. We do not exercise. Our kids do not go to school. We have lost all routines, um, everything. I mean, there's hardly an area of our lives or the lives of anyone around us that has not been upended. So I would have people recognize that the last three and a half, four weeks have been an adaptation bonanza. And if you are exhausted, that's a big chunk of it. So the good news is four weeks in, three and a half weeks in, people are, many people are able to start to find their rhythms, right? And I, I felt this week, this was the first week that did not feel like an adrenaline fueled panic. This felt more like a week. And I think we're gonna move into a phase where people have adapted a bit if they are under conditions that allow for this. We're then gonna be looking at chronic stress and we'll talk about that maybe at a future point. Is that the, that's the second bucket? No, the second bucket is uncertainty. Ah. So then there is this question of uncertainty and you rattled off all of these great uncertainties. Like, what is this gonna mean for my kids? What is this gonna mean for my future health? What is this gonna mean for the economy that is waiting for us when this all, you know, comes, you know, we can all leave our homes again. Um, this is very hard to bear. And, and we know from years of research on um, people who live under sustained circumstances of uncertainty that that is very taxing. So the advice we give, um, I want to go back to the first one for some advice and then back to the second one for some advice. So with adaptation, what I would say is, first of all, just give yourself a break. You're tired because you have adapted on every single front of your existence. Then, and I know this sounds corny, but I want to say why we've been saying this. Do what you can to put in some routines. They do not have to be gorgeous and elaborate. They can all be aspirational. You could be tweaking them all the time. What routines do is they take away decision making. And decision making is exhausting. Um, and so when we have good routines, what we've done is we've actually robbed ourselves of all the daily decisions that are tiring to make. We know when we're getting up, when we're exercising, when we have our first coffee, second coffee, like it's all done. So as you put in new routines, your stress will go down because you'll have fewer decisions you're making in a day and same for your kids. On the uncertainty, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take a pause. Sorry, I'm muted. I'm uh, full transparency here. I'm muting my microphone because my children are making noise in the kitchen downstairs. And I don't know to working with kids. So there's that level of stress, right? Managing this work from home thing. Mm -hmm. is, um, it's in real time right now. Mm -hmm. um, but the importance of routines in that they reduce the number of decisions we have to make and that there's a psychological and emotional benefit to that is um, like you're, you're, you know, yet again, kind of like blowing my mind. Well, thank you. I'm glad. I mean, I hope it's useful. But again, like I, I'm a teacher, right? I mean, I, I taught college psych for a million years. We can give the advice or we can tell you why we're giving you the advice. And if you want behavior change, you actually have to explain yourself a little bit. Um, okay. So if, if we talk about chronic uncertainty or perpetual, you know, persistent uncertainty, um, the advice I'm going to give here is, can be received as a little corny. And, and I know that, but I, I think here about, there's a, there's a psychologist at Vanderbilt, a guy named Bruce Compass, who has spent his career um, studying children under extraordinarily difficult, uncertain, persistent circumstances and looked at like what helps them get through and what helps them um, come out okay in the end. And what he has found is you take your problems and you divide them into two categories, things I can do something about, things I can do nothing about, right? So I'm worried we're gonna run out of coffee. I could try to do something about that. 
I am worried that <laughs> I am worried um, that uh, there's going to be you know massive economic impact, and my college graduate's not going to get a job. Okay, today I can do nothing about that. So the first category, we do what we can. The second category, and I find this to be almost unbearably impossible, we try to practice acceptance, which is we say, that's one I cannot do something about. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to ruminate on it. I'm going to focus on what I can control right now. This is like the serenity prayer type stuff. Basically, I had this fabulous interview with Bruce and he was like, basically, it's the serenity prayer. <laughs> this guy, 40 years of research, he's like, it all comes down to the serenity prayer. <laughs> yeah, the old wisdom is sometimes the best wisdom. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you mentioned adaptation and uncertainty as being these extraordinary um, things that we're going through right now. You also briefly touched on chronic stress. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... We worry about chronic stress. We worry for ourselves. We worry for our kids. I actually want to start with our kids and then we can come back to us. So as all of this started to come down, I pulled for myself all of the research that has been done over decades. I mean, literally going back to the seventies, looking at kids who were in persistently stressful conditions. Um, incredible poverty, um, abusive situations, I mean, privations of all sorts. And what these researchers did is they found the kids who thrived, who against all odds made it and seemed to come out pretty intact. And then they traced back what was true for those kids, like what were the major protective factors? And my favorite paper in this um, is written by a woman named Ann Maston, who's one of the main researchers. And she, um, the title of the paper has, is called Ordinary Magic. And what she says is, there's nothing totally unique about these kids. These were not oddly invincible kids. They weren't all brilliant. They weren't all superheroes. It's ordinary magic that was made in their homes that made it possible. And that ordinary magic, there's three key parts. So the first is they had some sense of control. So as we think about this under most of us, much gentler situations than were ever studied in this research, give your kids some control. So, okay, the routine will be a form of control. Um, give them a sense of what to expect in terms of how your day is gonna unfold, where you'll be and where you can be available. Um, give them choice wherever you can. Um, you know, I think about it a lot. Uh, you know, I've got two girls and you know, with my younger daughter, like. I cannot tell that child what to wear. I've never been able to tell that child what to wear. So I say, okay, we're going outside. You need this much coverage, right? Like it has to be long sleeves, long pants. Um, beyond that, she can wear whatever she wants, right? Um, what I'm finding with my teenager, and this seems to be helping, is to let them know when they are totally off the clock. The parts of the day where we will not intrude upon them at all, which adolescents are very accustomed to having. And then when they're on the clock, back into family life. If you and your kid are having a lot of friction, that off the clock time may be the duration of the school day, so long as your kid is taking care of their business. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> well, it's practical, but it's also, I mean, just taking this idea that um, what we all experience as adults when we're on the clock and off the clock, right? Like my behavior as, uh, as an organizational leader mm -hmm. is different than when I get in the car and I'm off the clock and I can, you know, listen to whatever I want to listen to, sing along if I want to, call my brother and share jokes or whatever, right? Like that's off the clock is really, that's a very useful construct. And I think most of us don't think about applying it to 
family life in that way. And, and teenagers who typically spend all day without their parents bugging them. And so I would say to teenagers, so long as you take care of your business in the off the clock hours, I'll stay out of your business. And then you're on the clock here and here, go. So control is one factor. Another factor is doing something that feels meaningful, having some sense of purpose. So this is where, even if your kid's grumbling about it, doing school, even if it's rudimentary, um, getting to the end of the day and being able to sort of show what they did with their day matters for kids. I would also say this is where we get serious about meaningful work for ourselves and our kids in our communities, right? If we can make masks, we're not just making them for ourselves. If we have enough food, we make sure that there's enough food for the people who may not have enough food, that we are taking measures to really try to support the vulnerable in our community. And we do it as adults and we involve our kids in it. It is the right thing to do. And also it happens to be a highly psychologically protective thing to do in terms of our own kids. Mm -hmm. And then the last is have fun with them. That when we look at kids who came out of horrible situations intact, someone loved them like crazy and there was joy in that relationship. Um, so if you are fortunate enough to feel like this is a bit of a pause, right? If, if you've got the kind of privilege where this becomes a pause in your life, then fill that with fun with your kids, right? Figure out how you're going to do the holidays, right? In a whole new way than maybe a lot or less formal or sweet than they used to be. But um, that is not icing, that's cake, to have that, um, that joyful relationship with your kid. That's a highly protective thing. So the three, three elements of ordinary magic, just to summarize, having fun. A sense of control. Sense. Having them do something of meaning, using their time meaningfully, not all their time, but by the end of the day, they should be able to point to something schoolwork or community work or both. And then um, positive relationship, having a good ongoing positive relationship, working to cultivate that. Um, I wanna get to like, all of that sounds like great. What do you recommend for the family who is like, I, I feel like I'm drowning. I've got mm -hmm. these young children who need to be supervised 100% of the time on their schoolwork and um, and I'm losing my mind and underperforming at, at work from home. Mm -hmm. um, what do you, how do you triage? What do you do? Like, what is it better to give up on schoolwork for a day and just focus on the ordinary magic that you just laid out? Is it okay to let your kids like, you know, binge on screen time just to like create a break? Yeah, there's, yes, there's some real okays in here. So first of all, everyone needs to lower their expectations, like a lot. Um, and we will not be as good at our jobs as we were, and we will not always be the parents we want to be because we're pretty stressed too. So if we can just say that. At the same time, I do feel like maybe this will pull the veil back on the fact that parenting's always been a little bit of a chaotic business, right? And life at home has always been sort of hard and difficult, and we haven't talked honestly about that, I think in the past. And so now everybody's getting really honest, like this is hard. Yes, this is hard. Parenting is always hard, um, but we're much more conscious of it all at once. It happens so fast. We don't have new systems. The other thing I would say is, yes, your kids are going to have more exposure to screens. Um, be careful of two things in particular. So it's not a total free for all. Number one, you know how flexible I am as a psychologist. I feel like there's a lot of ways to get things right. I still stand by my one rigid rule, which is do everything you can to keep screens out of the bedroom. 
Um, if they need to go in there because that is the only place to do their schoolwork quietly, fine, get them out at night. Like do not allow screens to erode sleep. This is not a sleep, you know, free for all with screens. The other is like what they're watching, right? This is an all the time rule, what they're watching. You know, there's a big difference between watching PBS kids, you know, and watching, you know, something that's scary or creepy or totally inappropriate. So if you keep those two guardrails in place, I think it's okay right now um, to let some of the other parameters soften. Yeah, there's a wide range of things my children are watching and their ages are, you know, 11 to 14. So I've got one on Breaking Bad, uh-huh. on Designated Survivor, and the other on like binging on Parks and Rec and The Office. Yeah, that's good. Like yeah. That's, the, that, that's their coping. Um, I want to talk to you about two very specific things. You and I had a conversation the other day about coping yeah. and kind of how we cope and how we course correct on how we cope. Yeah. And then the other, and I think we can talk about the coping in a second. I think the more important one though has to do with privilege okay. and the inequities that this, um, that this crisis is revealing uh, across our across the world, but specifically here in Cleveland too, we know that it's having a disproportionate impact on the most vulnerable communities. Mm-hmm. It's worse in other cities, um, as far as we know, according to the data, the best data available today. Yeah. But we also could anticipate that the benefit, whatever benefits come on the other side of this, they won't be evenly distributed because it's America and things seldom are unless unless they are um, or equitably distributed and they, they seldom are unless it's intentionally done. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there are unique stressors for vulnerable communities where there isn't the ability for people that you and I have to work from home because we do white collar work. Okay. There, there, there just isn't that ability and, and other people, other groups are more susceptible to layoffs and furloughs and to um, and to exposure to the virus if they work in certain mm-hmm. fields, usually, or if they cannot socially distance because they live, you know, in a very small and cramped setting, and that is not actually an option for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think um, what is difficult for many of us is going to be devastating for some. And and you said the word; it's the vulnerable. So we worry about people who obviously have underlying health conditions. But if you are poor right, a lot of the vulnerability lines up with race, right? If you're already suffering from the social determinants of health that are disproportionately bad news for people who are impoverished. I mean, there's so much vulnerability here. There's always that vulnerability, like it's always around us. What this is going to do is it's gonna throw it into high relief. We are gonna see death numbers that Mm -hmm. reflect racial and impoverished inequities. We're seeing right? them already. Death numbers, right? So it's stuff that's is vague most of the time or can be vague is mm-hmm. going to stop being vague. So there's two things that we can do here. One is we can recognize that we all to be socially responsible, to care for our neighbors by not leaving our home for weeks at a time. If we can be that socially responsible, if we can make those kinds of adjustments and those kinds of commitments, we can make other kinds of adjustments and commitments now and also coming out of this. So we can commit to doing things, let's think long-term and then let's think immediate, to address the inequities around access to healthcare, around access to the internet, right? This is now a full-blown crisis. It is not a luxury, it's a utility, 
right? And we are never more clear of it in moments like this. Access to educational options, access to clean spaces to live, access to food, right? These have all been a problem. They are now thrust up, you know, in terms of their the gravity, the, the real life or death implications these are gonna have. So we as a community can commit to addressing these inequities, not just because of a crisis, but because they're there all the time and then they get much more obvious to those of us who can look away from them when we're not in a crisis. Then I think there's the piece about what can we do right now, right? What can we be thinking about right now in the immediate um, for ourselves and like truly involving your kids in this. Um, my nine-year-old and I um, walked, put on backpacks, filled them with canned goods and walked them over to the little pantry in our community. And first of all, she was like, this is great. And she said, we should be doing this all the time. And I was like, we should be doing this all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And making masks and seeing what you can do to support the people in your community who are doing healthcare stuff or frontline stuff. Um, checking in with people who are doing, um, who are overwhelmed and seeing what you can do to provide for them in any way, even if it's shopping, things like that. So there's the immediate, but like, I don't want us to go back to the way we were going before. And even what you said about if we come out of this and we don't distribute the resources equitably, which will not be equally, right? The equitable distribution will not be the equal distribution of resources and, um, where some very terrifying and very upsetting death numbers are going to really um, put a very fine and painful point on this. We're talking with, I think as everybody knows, if you're tuned in with Dr. Lisa Demore, she runs Laurel's Center for Research on Girls. She's a best-selling author um, and a clinical psychologist with a practice helping adults and adolescents. Um, throughout our community. She consults nationally. And if you'd like to text your questions, there's a number on the screen, 330-541-5794. Before we get to um, the audience questions, I said something about coping. Yeah. And you and I talked about sort of how you, you know, you sort of this, this forking that happens where you're mm -hmm. like, I'm going to be the person I want to be, or I'm going to just actually like go deeper into like the depression that it, or, mm -hmm. or whatever whatever sort of not as productive. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that cool. and talk about kind of how, how really at any point you can course correct? Yes. So if we think, okay, ordinary magic for kids, positive coping for everybody. <laughs> so the way psychologists think about coping is everybody's coping. Everybody's doing what they consider coping, but not all coping is created equal. So let's talk about negative coping. And I'm calling them coping because in the short term, they do help you feel better. In the long term, they cause all sorts of trouble if they're negative coping. So negative coping are things like emotional withdrawal or turning to substances to blunt painful emotions all the time or um, finding yourself falling into what I call junk habits, you know, staying up all night, all night looking at the Internet or um, becoming sedentary or letting yourself like turn to chocolate cake as your main source of nutrition. You know, like I know I'm, I'm all for chocolate cake, but it can't be all the time. Um, and then uh, being hard on others, right? Dealing with our own distress by taking it out on the people around us. So this is coping, short-term benefit, long-term hazard. Okay, so here are the positive corollaries. So instead of emotional withdrawal, we're gonna seek social connection. Um, instead of using substances to blunt distress, we're gonna use happy distractions, right? Tiger King, man, you cannot think about anything else when you are watching Tiger King or the Great Pottery Throwdown. These are my, this is what's helping me through the pandemic. 
Um, instead of junk habits, we're going to do great self-care. We will be sleeping more. If you can sleep more, sleep more. Uh, do what you can to eat well. Get yourself outside. Yay for spring in Cleveland. Um, and then finally, taking care of other people. Right? It both helps us and it helps other people. And when I think about the back end of this, when I think about how people fare, you know, four more weeks, you know, however long this goes on, what we're going to see is a great divide in terms of how people coped, right? And people who use positive coping strategies are going to be in good shape, I think. People who use negative coping strategies, they're going to be paying a heavy price. Um, the only other thing I would say about coping, it is deeply personal. Like what works for me is not going to be what works for you. So so long as the way you are coping or someone else is coping is being fair to them and fair to others, like everyone gets to do their thing. So if you have like daytime pajamas as you're coping, great. If you feel like you need to learn two new languages as you're coping, great. Right. Like, but it doesn't have to be, you know, this is how I'm doing it. You should do it this way too. Mm -hmm. Well, I won't show you what I'm wearing, kind of like what pants I'm wearing right now. Here's a question. Again, questions at 330-541-5794. Also, people are leaving them on Facebook posts and, and other places. Lisa, some people who have historically had anxiety due to constant fear of the unknown have posted online that they feel actually less anxious during this pandemic because the threat is known and they can respond to it. Is this something you have heard as well? That's interesting. Um, well, that is interesting because it gets to that definition of like, well, underestimating your co underestimating your threat, you know, overestimating your threat, underestimating your ability to do something about this. On this one, those of us in privileged positions, like we can do something. You stay home. You wash your hands. Right? I mean, that. so there is this sort of more immediate um, relief. But there's something else in this question. And, and I think about, OK, like what what good, what real good could come out of this? And, and I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about this. Like, I, I want to really like try to think about what real good. So one is we don't go back on the inequities question. Like we, we take this much more seriously than we did mm -hmm. before. The other is a much higher tolerance among everyone for unpleasant emotion. I have been banging the drum on behalf of stress and anxiety for a while now. I would also like to bang the drum on behalf of helplessness is a normal and healthy emotion, frustration, fear, annoyance, worry. This is part of being human. And I fear that the definition of mental health, and I'm going to just do a little like minor um, axe to grind, because you know I always have an axe to grind. Um, I fear that the wellness- It wouldn't, wouldn't be a forum with you if you didn't grind it. <laughs> exactly. So I'm all for well-being. I fear that the wellness industry, the monetization of wellness, has sold the idea that mental health is when you feel calm and relaxed all the time. That is not accurate. Mental mm -hmm. health is when you have the right feeling at the right time. And, and the ability to manage those feelings. And then you can withstand and tolerate them. That is mental health. And so I actually would like to think that as people come out of this, they discover how durable they are, that they can actually feel helpless, upset, worried, frightened, quite anxious, tolerate it and get to the other side of it. And what we see when we look at populations that have been through really hard periods of time, like we look at the um, World War II population, um, this is anecdotal. I've heard this a lot and I could not find the data, but I, I'm gonna tell it anyway. Um, that over their lifetimes, they actually had apparently much lower levels of stress and anxiety because everything after World War II, they're like, I've seen worse. <laughs> you know? so, so this idea that difficulties, and this I do know we have data for, when people withstand difficult situations, they are more resilient in the face of new difficulties. 
your yardstick for what constitutes a crisis changes. The next barfy flu that goes through your kid's school will be nothing compared to you. Right. It used to be a crisis. Lice? Eh, not great. Not COVID-19. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, the uh, Another question here about the stress, stress management, specifically for people who live alone. You and I are both surrounded by our families. Um, there's a different experience when you are isolated from every from everybody. Yes, I I will say when I think about when I lie in bed and worry, which I do. Like, what do I worry about? I worry about people who are poor. I worry about people who are alone. I worry about people who, um, you know, by just nature of circumstance, are in an extremely difficult time. So what I would say to people who are alone is, yes, this is extremely taxing. And I hope you are doing everything you can to stay in contact with people um, mm -hmm. at, at a socially appropriate distances. Um, and you deserve that and you need it. Humans need contact. And I hate that this is happening. I will say historically, there's probably never been a moment to be in contact, right? A better moment, right? We have ways to be in contact that we couldn't have even dreamed of yeah. 10 years ago, right? So contact is very possible. I do, I have become much more conscious and maybe you too, Dan, of um, physical presence with people and energy from people. And and the and the um, it's different to be together like this and to be together in a room, even if we're not, you know, touching. I mean, it's a there's something that I think we're all feeling. Um, for those of us who are used to a lot of people around, feeling a little deprivation, and then for other people who may like really like a little more privacy and have kids in all over the place, may feel like they could use a little less energy in their space. But I'm much more conscious of those things these days. But how do you manage it if you are by yourself and looking at another another three weeks potentially of being by yourself? How do you how do you suggest people manage that when it when it is so difficult? Particularly, I mean, I'm a very extroverted person. If I were as isolated right now as some people I know, like I I'd be going a little I, I going a little crazy, right? I'd be like a little bit too much inside my own head. You would okay. So here's what I'm saying or I'm thinking, right? Go for a walk and get outside and see other humans. Um, what I am finding, and I, I know it very dependent on the neighborhood where you live, is that first of all, the other humans who I don't know were like, hello, <laughs> greetings warmer than I've ever in my life shared with strangers. Um, and then I'm running into a lot of people I do know and we stand you know, a good distance apart and we catch up. So just because you're, isolating does not mean you cannot leave your home. It means that you can go out, stay six feet apart, wear a mask if you, you know, I mean like, but this doesn't mean we cannot be in the presence of others, even if you live alone. Turn Pardon on your I, Yeah, I, I muted myself again. Um, so for, there's another question here regarding um, parenting high school age and college age kids who have just re-entered the orbit uh, unwillingly in the, in the case of high school age kids. Um, what do you do? Ignore the messy room, ignore their crazy schedules. I mean, I think this goes back to something you mentioned earlier about on the clock and off the clock. It's a little different for a high school student than it is for a college junior. So one of the rules that we have in psychology is that we all tend to regress when we get around our parents. <laughs> and this is true, right? I'm 50 this year. I get around my parents and I act 
much younger than that, um, and not always in the best ways. So this is true for those of us who've had a long run into adulthood, and I think it's especially amplified for those people who are just getting their foothold in adulthood. So first, like, just know the dynamic for what it is. You know, your kid comes home and they regress, and then, of course, as a parent, you regress right back with them, right? You can fall into those same patterns. So two ways to slice this. One is be gentle with yourself, be gentle with your kid. This is all very strange. No one wanted it. It's not how it's supposed to go. The other is with every adolescent and young adult, actually in person, but I think this is especially amplified at these ages, there's, they've all got two sides. They have their regressive, um, maybe lazy, maybe impulsive, maybe you know immature side, and they have their thoughtful, wise, mature, decent, perspective-holding, self-sufficient side. Okay, that thoughtful, wise, mature, self-sufficient side was at college. They have been functioning at college quite well if they didn't come home before that now. So I would say as your parent, engage the thoughtful, wise, mature side. Um, the part you speak to is the part that's gonna speak back to you. So if the room is a problem, I would say, look, you and I both know this isn't gonna work in the long haul. You know, I know you don't wanna be here and you know I can't stand having food in your room. What's the solution? As opposed to, you know, being pulled into that regressive space. Here's a question from a high school student, Lisa. Um, hi, I know, I knew that would give you joy. Uh, this is from a high school student. My friends and I have been noticing that we have been lacking motivation, almost going into this dead stage. Mm -hmm. And since, as you said, acceptance, uh, we have mostly taken that to, quote, play dead mentality, to a play dead mentality, sleeping more, Netflix, and of course, other kinds of screen time. Um, so, how would we combat this to get back the motivation in our home instead of getting that from school? Love it. Absolutely love it. Okay. So first of all, I will say um, sleep more. Yes. Yes. High schoolers. Yay. <laughs> like, and just to recap, high schoolers need nine hours of sleep a night. Middle schoolers need 10 hours of sleep a night. Elementary school kids need 11 hours of sleep a night. Whatever else. A lot of kids are finally getting the sleep they deserve. Many are sleeping longer than that because of sleep deficits they've been carrying. So yay, sleep. Then I would say it is perfectly fine if you don't feel like doing your work. You're not supposed to feel like doing all of your work. Nobody feels like doing all of their work. And we don't talk about this enough with kids. We sort of have this idea of like, where's your intrinsic motivation? Shouldn't you love it? Shouldn't you be up for it all the time? Okay. I love my job. I love my job all day long. On a Friday afternoon, I have to line up the coffee and then the chocolate reward and then the, you know, like carrots all day. So let's pull back the veil on intrinsic motivation and say to all kids everywhere, you're not going to like it all and you don't have to like it all. And it is not a sign of your decency or your seriousness as a student or your promise in the field, right? What you need to do is figure out hacks. What can you do to get yourself to do the thing you don't want to do? So if there's a certain amount of work you're really supposed to be doing, is it peanut M&Ms? Is it a kitchen dance party? Is it hopping on TikTok and trying to learn the latest dance? You figure out the carrot. You do the work you don't feel like doing. Put the carrot in. Enjoy it. Um, there's no shame in that game. And you will feel actually better at the end of the day if you've done something you didn't feel like doing. And it, you can point to it as a source of some sense of accomplishment. That's awesome advice. And I am reflecting on moments in my life, all the carrots that have gotten me through all sorts of things. Even yesterday, like I was had to, you know, had to do the grocery shopping 
am finding it a very stressful experience. Mm -hmm. So I bought a nice big bar of, of dark chocolate and just ate the entire thing on my way home. Okay, so this is my other ax to grind. Like I have a lot of axes, but it makes me really, really upset when we're like, why aren't they intrinsically motivated in their work? Okay, they did not choose the class. They did not, you know, this was assigned to them. It might be tedious, right? None of us are intrinsically motivated about most of what we, about what's mostly and we are, and yeah. we are doing our favorite job, right? So, right, right? so this is a great moment to sort of pull back the veil on all of that with kids and be like, oh yeah, no, no, I know how to, I know you don't want to do it. Here's the hack. Here's how you get it done anyway. Yeah. Um, Another question uh, regarding adolescence, but from a parent of adolescence, what input do you have for parents of adolescence as far as better understanding what their children are actually going through? Mm -hmm. I'm saying this from the view of adolescents, especially being very social creatures. They spend a majority of their time with their peers, far beyond what most spend interacting with their family. Now it's been turned upside down and they spend no time with those they used to see daily. And I feel like many parents are in a fight or flight mode at this point not knowing how to help and how bad this is this all is for their children. Let me actually pick up the end about how bad this is for kids. Unless you are in devastating circumstances, and there are plenty of people in this community in devastating circumstances, this is going to be stressful. It does not have to be something that puts a dent in your kid. It does not have to be something that changes the trajectory of their overall lives. I mean, I really, we have seen kids and people come out of honestly way worse way worse. So I, I want to just contain that a little bit. Um, okay. So in terms of teenagers and their social lives, I would never underestimate the creativity of a teenager ever. And they are using social media in new ways than they used to. I'm also hearing about kids. I love this so much who they drive and they all happen to have access to cars simultaneously went to the Dairy Queen drive-through and then sat in the parking lot in the back of, in their trunks, at a great social distance and enjoyed their Dairy Queen together. This is all good. This is all good. So I um, I have been volunteering for my kid to have a six feet of party <laughs> in the backyard where we literally set up chairs, <laughs> six and a half to seven feet to be safe. And then kids can come over, sit in those chairs. They can see one another. They can go home. Um, from what I understand, and you decide on masks, not masks. I'm not an expert on that. This is still within acceptable safety parameters as long as they are staying far enough apart. And I would say outdoors, not going to each other's homes. What about younger children? Parents of younger children have asked um, specifically how to communicate with a five-year-old about what's actually going on right now. Um, age appropriate communication is always important. What are the words to use in this crisis for these children right now? Great question. So I actually was on a panel last night with a woman named um, Cara Natterson, who's a pediatrician in California, who just wrote a fantastic book called Decoding Boys. And this is her answer. And I just I just thought it was so, so right on. Um, she said, for kids probably five and younger, you're going to keep, they don't need to know a ton. You're going to say, you know how sometimes like there's a yucky cold going around your class and then everyone gets it and then they got to stay home because they're sick. Well, it's like that, but it's kind of everybody right now. There's this really yucky virus. It's a new one that's going around. So everyone's staying home so nobody gets sick. That's good. That's enough. That, that is perfectly adequate for a younger child. I would say for um, then like six to 10 is an interesting range. Um, let's go over that. So, and again, Kara was, Kara was really thoughtful about this right last night. Um, older kids, 12 and older, like give them information. 
like take them to the CDC website, show them the science of how this works, walk them through these models. Like they can handle information. If they are curious, point them to the really good stuff. Like let them be the engaged young people they are. That six to 10 is trickier. And so what I would do is I would follow their lead, see what they're asking, answer what they're asking. And I would also usually find out a little bit more about why they're asking. Um, one of the received pieces of wisdom in psychology is that often when a kid is asking a question, they already have an idea or they have some weird piece of information. And so you want to find that out first, right? So if you, um, if you, if your kid says, you know, where did this virus really come from? You might say, why are you asking? And then they might say, and I am hearing this, I had some kid in my class saying that the Chinese kids did it, right? Like you want to surface that and deal with that before you give some technical answer because you're not going to get to the root of the problem and or they're going to mash together what you tell them with what they heard into some sort of Frankenstein understanding of things. Mm -hmm. What about um, parents of children who have a diagnosed mental health issue? Mm -hmm. Particularly um, children who are diagnosed with depression or some form Great. of depression. So glad this is coming up. Um, across the country, but I have to say Ohio on this, as with it seems a lot of things, is crushing it. All of the rules have been loosened about what we call telehealth. So telehealth is basically, you know, communicating like this. Prior to COVID-19, it was a specialized license in psychology. I didn't have the license. I saw all my people in person. Um, as very early on, the Ohio State Board, at the direction of the American Psychological Association, sent out messages saying all the rules are relaxed. You take care of people any way you need to. And we've all switched over to relatively secure platforms. But telehealth is now widely available. It does not have to come from a specially licensed practitioner. In Ohio in particular, you can start with someone local online and then follow up with them in person when things go back to normal. That it's, it's gonna be a local clinician because Ohio has been so good about this. It is increasingly covered by insurance companies. They've been sort of widgy about it before. They are now under a lot of pressure. Um, and, I, and actually DeWine signed something requiring telehealth coverage um, in Ohio. Uh, Medicaid covers it. So you do not have to wait until this is over to continue therapy or start a therapy. Go through your pediatrician, go through your kids' counselors at school, find a good local clinician. We are all seeing people online now. We all need to work too. Um, in fact, it's probably never been more convenient to meet with a clinician. Are there particular ways though, or particular strategies that parents in between, you know, visits, telehealth visits with yeah. your clinician, that parents can support their children who are carrying these diagnoses? I would say, I know it sounds like a, a kind of banging the same drum, coping, right? If a kid is, anyone who is suffering, anyone who is suffering psychologically, they're gonna need to cope. Either they can cope by being really crabby and really difficult and staying up all night online, or they can cope by getting a lot of sleep and being in positive relationship. I mean, it's really gonna come down to those choices and really helping to nudge kids away from negative coping because it's the diagnosis and then it's the negative coping that arrives from the diagnosis that really gets kids into a hole. Another question uh, from one of our uh, community members, what advice do you have for those who are grieving things like canceled weddings or vacations or holidays with extended family? Many people feel like they shouldn't be upset about these things because so many folks are more worse off, but nevertheless, there seems like there's real grief there. Okay, this is not the Distress Olympics. There will be no winner. Um, <laughs> this just stinks. And yes, you should be very sad. You have every right to be sad about 
the loss of weddings and vacations and big things. And teenagers have every right to be sad about the loss of proms and graduations and conferences that they worked so hard to prepare for. Everybody gets to be sad. And you being sad does not detract from anyone else's sadness. Your suffering does not minimize anyone else's suffering. I am on the side of having the right feeling at the right time. Everyone gets to be sad right now if they are sad. Everyone, unless there is some worrisome underlying condition, which then call a telehealth person, we can bear it. We can bear it. May not like mm -hmm. it, we can bear it. And there's this wonderful quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. She's like, a woman's like a tea bag. Like she never knows how, you never know how strong she is till she's in hot water. <laughs> Let us discover some strengths in this hot water, right? Let us figure out. We had no idea how much we could bear. Here's why I'm kind of excited about this, like kind of into this idea of, hey, we are all going to live into a level of distress we did not maybe know before and did not think we could manage before. The more distress you discover you can manage, the more free you become. Mm -hmm. And for adults and kids, if you feel like you cannot handle much in the way of distress, you have to narrow your life. If you feel like you can withstand a fair bit of distress or uncertainty, you actually start to be more free in how you operate. Lisa, I'm looking over here at a bunch of really important questions and I'm recognizing that we're getting close to kind of the end. And um, I hope that if we do have to, I oh, just want to gauge you good for another five minutes or so yeah. at least. Um, and if there may be some additional questions maybe that we can put to you and then post answers to our blog yeah. later, if that's okay. Um, the, uh, how do you address um, the particular anxiety of people who work in the healthcare field? It's real, it's real. Um, what I would say is if you're in Ohio, um, I think that's, seems to be from what I'm understanding, I'm not an expert on this, you know, better than being in other places um, of the country right now. And um, what I would say is this is one of those tricky moments where, you know, the overestimation of risk and the underestimation of what one can do to keep oneself safe, right? I mean, that is a tricky balance right now because the risk is high and I know that the safety measures are still coming into place. Um, the way I would think about this is even under best circumstances, right? if the risks remain contained and the protections come through, it's going to be just incredibly stressful, like intensely stressful. And the rule that I want to fall back on then is if stress goes up, supports have to go up. So if your stress goes up and there's nothing that can be done to mitigate it, which if you're in the healthcare field, there may not be anything to mitigate it, then find other ways to relieve stress. Is there anything else that you can bring in to your life that makes things easier, right? Can you um, ask for help with shopping? Can you ask for help with um, suggestions for how to entertain your kids when you're home so that you can come home and truly um, relax? That it doesn't have to be a one-to-one -one correspondence where you, re you manage the stress by reducing the particular stress. You can manage the stress by raising other supports. Mm -hmm. What about um, uh, di parents, divorced parents? They face a unique situation. Um, one parent's social distancing norms may be different from another parent's, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, how do you manage all of that? Okay, so I'm actually going to go back to Dr. Kara Natterson, who was on this call with me last night, because she had a really, really brilliant way of thinking about this that's super obvious when you hear it, but I thought was really illuminating. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, look, think about it in terms of germ families, right? They were all deciding to belong to a particular germ family. So my germ family is me, my husband, and my two kids right now. Like we're sharing germs. You got your germ family. We got our germ family. The goal is to keep a very small germ family. 
And the challenge is if there's two homes and kids going back and forth between those two homes, that extends the germ family. It becomes a problem if one of those parents is going out, bringing new germs in, mm-hmm. or one of those parents has people coming in, picking up the germs and taking them out. Mm-hmm. So it really comes down to what's involved in really containing the germ family. So it's not out of the question that kids could go back and forth, but then there has to be a lot of containment mm-hmm. within those two homes because you've now doubled the potential for that germ family to extend. Mm-hmm. Lisa, um, there's a bunch. There are a bunch of questions, and we'll put them. Uh, we'll put them to you and get answers if, if you right. don't mind. We'll we'll get them onto the blog. But I wanted to end by talking about the importance of altruism at this moment. A friend of mine posted on Facebook this morning that she and she didn't come up with this idea. She got it from somebody else. That um, while she was shopping, she bought a couple of gift cards from the very store that she was shopping at, and then. Um, once she had checked out, handed the gift cards to the grocery store checker and the bagger as a way to say thank you. I'm going to cry just thinking about yeah, it. I know. I know. It's very um, <laughs> in a great way. There is a, there's a real, it seems to me that right now, a really important message and thing that we can all do is think about altruism and how we want to show up as altruistic mm-hmm. and what benefits there are for the broader community but also for ourselves, there's always like some self-interest in altruism because you get mm-hmm. to that like, point to, hey, I was the person I wanted to be. Yes, yes. Um, so we feel good about ourselves for the things we do well. There is no other source of self-esteem. And so when I run down that positive coping list, the last thing always is taking care of others, which does seem to be a strange thing to be at the bottom of a personal coping list, but the data are all there. If you are taking care of others, that actually helps you take care of yourself. Um, And then the other thing I would put in here in terms of a universal thing that we can all use is gratitude. There is a ton of research showing that if you can stop and reflect on what you're lucky to have and reflect on your good fortune and reflect on what you're thankful for, your well-being goes up, your stress goes down. And what I want people to do is take all that well-being and relaxation and channel it into caring for others. And then, of course, for the broader Cleveland community. Yeah. Altruism too. I mean, it's not, it doesn't have to be the big cash gift. It can just be like doing the dishes. Yep. Your family doesn't have to. Yep. Absolutely. Lisa, I, we are so grateful to you Uh, on behalf of a a grateful community. Thank you for um, making yourself available for this important conversation. These are um, just remarkable, unprecedented, challenging times. Um, Your advice, I think, I'm going to go back and watch this just because uh, just so I can be sure to absorb 100% of it. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you to the City Club and for all you do um, there. You guys are just incredible. We're trying. We're trying. Lisa, thank you so much. I'm going to do a little close here. Thank you so much for joining us for today's forum on how to manage stress, anxiety, and family life during COVID-19 with Dr. Lisa Demore. She appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to all of the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. And if you want to purchase any of Dr. Demore's books, visit your local bookstore. Um, we'll call them up, order it. They probably do curbside pickup. We're also grateful to Life Act and the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University, our community partners for today's forum. And as we close, I want to once again thank our many generous members, sponsors, donors, and those who support City Club forums. They're listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. 
If you'd like to join them in making a contribution to our conversation to support conversations of consequence in this time, you can do so online at cityclub.org/donate. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay close in your hearts if you can't stay close in person. Our forum is adjourned. Thank <laughs> you.